Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Journey Within podcast. Doing this one from location, which I'm guessing nobody would be able to guess where I'm at. So we are in Ethiopia right now. Dad and I came here to hunt Mount Nyala and sitting down with Jason and Clinton Stone to do a, their first ever podcast. So I, if I could show you a picture of how excited these two are right now, you guys would go crazy. Jason and Clinton, how are you guys doing? I'm doing very good. Thank you, Mark. As you said, this is my first podcast. I'm very, very excited. Very excited. For yeah, anybody that's sure. listening, that voice is Jason, and this is Clint. Well, I'm also doing very good. Thank you, Mark. And this is, like you said, my first podcast, so I'm not as excited as Jason. <laughs> <laughs> so to, to set this up for, for everybody that's listening right now, we are at the kitchen table. It's not a lodge. What would you call this? I would call it um, basically a hunting camp. Hunting camp, but not yeah. like a... Not like a traditional yeah. African hunting camp. Yeah. More like a... Like a house in the middle of town. That's a good one. It's a house in the middle of an Ethiopian village. A village. Yeah, I would go with village. Village. Yeah. So uh, we've lost power two days ago now. I think this is day three that day. we are without power now. Yeah. So we are running this off a generator. So if you hear a light little sound in the background and also i don't know there's probably about 25 guys outside so you may hear some yelling screaming kicking anything like that don't worry about it we're going we're going to power on here absolutely that that thing that's making the noise in the background it kind of sounds like a tractor so yeah just uh, ignore that so we're we're actually wrapped up our hunt here in ethiopia so we're going to talk about that throughout the the podcast but um let's dig into your guys's history how did you guys get in but before we talk about how you got into the hunting industry, I assume you both hunted growing up. Yeah, very much. Yeah, I'll start off. Uh, we grew up hunting. My dad was, uh, he wasn't a professional hunter like us, but we grew up hunting from probably the ages of five, six. Uh, the first animal that I ever shot was a diker, and it was a female diker, and I was hunting with a little twenty-two, a single shot twenty-two. Mm-hmm. 
and the diker was lying down broadside, and I'll never forget. I had such bad bug fever. I was aiming at the diker's shoulder, and I hit it in the base of its neck, and it dropped down like, like it was struck by lightning. Uh-huh. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, so pretty much we both grew up sort of hunting uh-huh. and... Yeah, we hunting, fishing, fishing, hunting, any anything outdoors. Basically, okay. we we really enjoyed anything outdoors. And when we re- realized that we could sort of make a living out of uh-huh. hunting, we we realized, that, well, this is the way to go. This is what we're going to do. So, how old? I guess one question: There's no hunting age in South Africa, right, or anywhere in Africa. There's no minimum age, is there? No, you can hunt from when you're knee high to a grasshopper. So, uh-huh. it's, as soon as you can hold a firearm, and your parents think that you are good to go, you you can start hunting. What is it? And uh, just for South Africa to own a rifle or a gun, what is the process to? Well, it's a hell of a procedure to get a firearm license in South Africa. Uh, basically, what happens is each time you want to get a firearm, mm-hmm. you have to get a license for the firearm. And the application is probably 20 pages long. And each and every single time you do your firearm license application, you've got to get your fingerprints taken. They take a picture of you and they attach that to the application. And it normally takes probably anywhere from a year to two years before they will give you the license. Oh, wow. So it and takes... Yeah, it takes, it takes a long time. And then the other thing that we have to do is we've got to get a competency certificate. So for every firearm type that you want, you've, you, you've got to do a competency for it. So mm-hmm. if you've got a, a bolt-action rifle, you've got to do a competency test. And that takes anywhere from six months to a year and a half, sometimes even two years before you get your competency to be able to even start the application to get your firearm license. So once you do your competency test mm-hmm. and you get that, you have to buy the gun, obviously. Then does it sit in the police station or wherever you're while the process goes on? Yeah, so if you buy a, a firearm from, say, a gun dealer, what mm-hmm. happens is the firearm will stay with a gun dealer until your license is approved. So you, you're not allowed to use that firearm, you're not allowed to touch it, it stays in the safe, and it's there until you get your firearm license. That is a hell that, of a process. It's, it's a hell of a process, and the other thing is you have to do it every single five, every, every five years you've got to renew your firearm license. So if you've got 10 rifles uh-huh. and five handguns, you've got to do that whole process every single five years for every single firearm that you have. It's, it's a hell of a job. But once you once you've got it and you got to redo it the five years, you can still keep your guns, basically while the while the renew is the renew quicker than too. No, the renewal is not much quicker. The thing is, you have to renew your firearm license before the license expires. If if the license expires, you have to hand your firearm into the police station, and then you've got to reapply for that license, and uh, they can not issue the license again and that's it your firearm is gone game over as jason is well aware of because his nine mil he didn't renew it on time so they had to keep his gun for a good two years i think it was about yeah i think two they years. kept yeah. it for nearly three years while i reapplied for the license wow. and i handed it in at the police station and they had it for for three years it's unbelievable wow and, and for everybody that's listening you guys grew up in south africa which part of south africa East coast of South Africa. Okay. So well, I was born in East London, which is in the Eastern Cape. Okay. But we pretty much grew, well, I grew up in sort of a small town called Howick, which is on the East Coast, sort of 100 kilometers or 80 miles from, from Durban. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And that's where you guys still live today or close by? 
Still, still, still today, yeah. Pretty much. So yeah, sure. growing up, I mean, so when, when I do the podcast in the states, like I, we always talk about everybody's favorite thing to hunt or favorite hunting memories. But when I talk to anybody in the east, it's either deer or turkeys because that's what we have or yeah, that's or waterfall. Typical. But for you guys, I mean, how many different species are there in Africa that you guys could hunt growing up? Yeah, we, we are very fortunate living in Africa. We've got such a wide variety of, of animals that you can hunt. When myself and Clint grew up, we spent a lot of time hunting bush pigs. Uh, the area that we grew up in, there's a lot of uh, maize farmers, lots of sugarcane farmers. And uh, like I say, I mean, we used to put out a lot of baits for the pigs. Uh -huh. and we would sit up there until 12, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning waiting for the pigs to come in. And it's kind of like baiting a leopard. We learned how to bait and all kinds of hunting techniques just mm -hmm. to outsmart those wily pigs. To shoot a big pig, a big boar, you really got to know what you're doing. So we would often sit in the full moon nights waiting for the pigs to come in over the baits. Mm -hmm. And you really hone your hunting skills hunting those big pigs. And the, the hunting season in Africa really, I mean, there's something to hunt 12 months a year, right? Yeah, you can hunt the whole year round, uh, which is a good thing. For most of your animals that are ordinary game animals, like a bush pig, uh, a diker and stuff like that, you can hunt the whole year round. Okay. Yeah. It was, uh, if, I, if I switch off bush pigs, what was your, like, uh, everybody thinks of Africa, like the iconic kudu. Did you hunt, hunt a lot of kudus growing up? Or is that, like, More. for a local person, is that not what, like, we should think from being from the U.S.? But for us in, in our area, the Midlands, it's not really sort of a bushveld area. So there okay. was a lot of bushbuck, Cape bushbuck. Ah, gotcha. Okay. So we did a lot of bushbuck and common reedbuck. And those were the sort of the, the species that were close to, to where we live, basically. Okay. Yeah. And then yeah. a lot of nyala as well. well nyala, nyala, common so, reedbuck, yeah. daika, that kind of thing we shot a lot of when we were growing up. And I assume, what, what, if, if you look at South Africa, how many people hunt? Is it? When, when I grew up, just about everybody in my school, in, in my standard, my grade, a lot of our friends grew up hunting. And if they weren't hunting, they were fishing. That's how we grew up. But uh, if you look at nowadays, no, nobody's growing up hunting anymore. I mean, yeah. very, very few people are doing it. But in our, when, when we grew up, it, it was very common. It was the way of, yeah, it was it the way was of the childhood, way. really. Exactly. Yeah. Very similar to how it is in the U.S. Things have just, and don't get me wrong, there's still still kids that hunt, but just not how it was 20 years ago, exactly. or 30 years ago, just because there's so much to do on your phone or iPad or mm -hmm. sports or, or whatever it is. So, Clinton, you mentioned um, kind of found out that you could make a, a living out of being an outfitter. So what was what got you guys to start? What was the moment to where you're like, man, we can we can be outfitters and, and have hunters come over here? Well, basically, when when we well, when I left school, I sort of left and I went to Zimbabwe for three years, and that's where I sort of started to learn about hunting mm -hmm. and, and pretty much develop you know, the skills and everything that we needed and everything. So I sort of did a a pre sort of apprenticeship over there and that's okay. where we learned to hunt and from there when i left zimbabwe it was i think it was in august 1998 when the farms and everything started getting taken over yeah. in, in zimbabwe so then i came back to south africa and then i worked for another outfitter for a, for a short period and then we sort of started our own thing when we realized right there. They are, that's 
I think it was 98, 99 when I, we started. I can tell on, you it's I can tell you it's 98 because I've been following you guys around and on your logo it says established. 1998. Yes, it does. Yes, I can sir. vouch that it was. So exactly. while Clinton was doing that in Zimbabwe, what were you doing, Jason? I did an apprenticeship for a guy by the name of Jack Roll. Okay. And he was based out of Messina, which is right up on the Zimbabwe border. And that's where I started hunting. I did an apprenticeship with him. And I was probably six months into my apprenticeship, and he let me start guiding clients uh, right off the bat. So that really helped a lot. I did a lot of plains game hunting with him, and he did a lot of hunting in Zambia, and he did quite a bit in Zimbabwe mm-hmm. too. So we got exposure to hunting dangerous game very early on in our careers and a lot of experience. Uh, I would say by the time I finished my, my apprenticeship, I probably did 20 leopards and maybe 50 buffalo. So by the, by the time you've, you, you qualified, mm-hmm. you, you know what you're doing. So explain the apprentice part because everybody here is PH in Africa. What does it take to become a PH? Well, basically, you've got to do an apprenticeship with, a, with an outfitter mm-hmm. that does a lot of dangerous game hunting. And uh, when I did my apprenticeship, we weren't allowed to eat at the table with the clients. We had to eat with the locals and we had to learn to speak the language. And when we could speak the language, we were allowed to eat at the table. Okay. And when you're an apprentice, you pretty much do all the really nasty, nasty jobs. The grunt work. I mean, you're fixing tires until midnight, you're skinning animals, you're caping stuff, you're putting it in the salt. You're pretty much making sure that everything's ready on the hunting vehicle for the next day when uh-huh. you go hunting. Uh, if you got onto the hunting vehicle and you forgot shooting sticks or a cooler box or whatever it was, boy, did you get into some serious trouble. So uh, you learned how to do what you needed to do and you did it properly. If you messed up, oh boy, they got stuck into you. They, they didn't play. So after the apprentice, so you got to do so many things. How long does it normally take? It depends on the apprentice himself and how much experience he's got. So if, if you really shop, you can qualify probably in two years. Um, if you're not as sharp as the other guys and you struggle with a few odds and ends, it's going to take you four years before you get a license. And is there a, f- a finished test at the end of it? Yeah, each country is completely different. Uh, most of the countries you've got to do a written examination and mm-hmm. in some of the countries you've got to do a shooting test and all the rest of that and uh, a practical examination where you'll go into the field with a qualified PH and mm-hmm. he'll ask you all kinds of questions and you'll have to get in position to, to stalk and hunt an animal. In many of the cases, you'll actually have to shoot an animal, cape it out, and show that you pretty much know what you're doing. Now, does one country honor the other? So you've you got yours in South Africa, can you use it in Zim, Zambia? Well, you see, the thing in South Africa is your license. When, when, when I did my license, it was a 10-day course. Uh, so when you completed your 10-day course, you got your license and off you went. Uh-huh. Uh, Nowhere in the world can you be qualified to do anything in 10 days. Imagine being a doctor and doing a heart transplant and you've only got 10 days experience in doing heart transplants. You wouldn't want that doctor to to kind of work on you. So the South African system is a little bit flawed in in that sense, whereas Mm -hmm. in Zimbabwe, you had to do a minimum of a two-year apprenticeship, two to four years before you could even write your exam. Mm -hmm. And when you wrote your exam, you would only be qualified to hunt a planes game. And if you did so many days with a, a qualified professional hunter, then they would give you your, your dangerous game license. Normally, they would let you hunt buffalo first. And when you shot maybe, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 buffalo mm-hmm. with clients, 
then they would let you get a license for elephants and cats and all the rest. And, and that's the correct right way to, 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 to become qualified. That's how I went through the ranks. Uh, yeah. I think South Africa is similar. You do your 10-day course. Mm -hmm. And then after your 10 days, I think you have to do 60 days of... Now. Now, now it is. Now yeah, I don't know how... Yeah, it, yeah. Yeah. But now you have to do 60 days of dangerous game experience, which okay. still isn't enough in my yeah. opinion. You still need to do a whole bunch more than 60 days before you have enough experience to guide an international guy yeah. and well, be responsible for that guy. One yeah. of the things that always amazes me with, with you guys is, you know, I ask a lot of questions in the field of birds and, and plants and stuff like that, and you guys know it instantly. Like, is that part of the process, too? Like, literally, like you guys have I've always asked the question, you guys know exactly what bird it is, and then you list a scientific name and all the way right down, and I'm talking Tweety Birds to Ducks to Geese to, to you name it. Now that is pretty much when, you, when you're doing your professional hunters, your exams, basically, they test you on the trees, the grasses, the birds, pretty mm -hmm. much everything. So you've got to have a sort of a, a good understanding of everything, basically, before you get your pH license, gotcha. so you gotta you gotta know all of that sort of stuff. Is the pH profession growing, staying the same, or reducing down in the number of people that are doing it each year? I would say there's probably more people becoming professional hunters in South Africa now today than when I started. When I started, there were a lot less. Um, but, yeah, I would say nowadays there's probably a lot more professional hunters in South Africa. Competition in, in South Africa for hunting is, yeah, is, it's is, is very competitive. There's a, there's a lot of guys in the business. And the bad thing about having so many professional hunters is there's a lot of bad ones. So mm -hmm. when you're doing your homework to do a safari with somebody, you really got to do your homework and make sure you're going with the right, mm -hmm. with the right outfit and the right professional hunter. Otherwise, things can go. A little bit pear-shaped you know as you know i mean south africa in some parts has got a bad reputation yep. for this the the fences and uh, hunting animals in small small enclosures and yep. things like that so you really need to do your homework and make sure you're hunting with a with a proper guy yeah i mean there's some phenomenal hunting in south africa don't get me wrong i mean there's some massive open areas where you can hunt all kinds of critters and have a really really good safari most pe people, when they start their career in hunting Africa, I mean, you want to hunt South Africa or you want to do That's, Namibia and yep. start off with the Plains game, kind of a, a deal first. Yep. So when you guys um, started outfitting, where did you start at? Like, what was the country or were the, did you guys just go big right off the bat? Yeah, I was very fortunate. The guy that, that I worked with or worked for doing my apprenticeship, he did a lot of hunting in Zimbabwe and he did a lot of hunting in Zambia and okay. we did the odd safari in Tanzania too. So we got stuck straight into the dangerous big game hunting and that's where we built up a lot of our experience. That's kind of your guys' guys' niche. So I'm I was trying to remember how many times I've hunted with you guys. It's quite a bit and it's a lot. Dad and I have already already set to go to Tanzania with you guys next year as well. Um just because you run it I mean you guys run top notch and when I go to the area I know it's the best the best area. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So let's talk Ethiopia since fresh on the mind just got done hunting here. And you've been hunting in Ethiopia for how many years now for mountain? I think this is my 22nd year that we're hunting the same concession area now. So we know the area very, very well. I started hunting here with Colonel Nagusi himself when, when, when he was still alive. And from there, I took over hunting with old Danny Nagusi. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've been hunting in his area, like I said, for the last 22 years. So... We, we've we've hunted here a lot. We know the area, and uh, it's it's always a good experience for us because there's so much game. So something I learned on this is that for Mountain Niala, currently there's only 22 tags in all of Ethiopia for Mountain Niala. Yeah, very much so. It's supply and demand. I think mm -hmm. uh, the area that's got the most Mountain Niala tags is eight eight for the area. All the other areas have sort of between six and four tags. Mm -hmm. There are only four outfitters in Ethiopia that are operating. So it's a very small industry in, in, in Africa. Yeah. Uh, if you compare it to Zimbabwe or Tanzania or South Africa. So, I mean, four outfitters is, is nothing. There's only one taxidermist in the whole of Ethiopia. So it just shows you how small the industry is yep. in Ethiopia. So on, on the 22 tags, has it been like that for a number of years or were there, did there used to be more at some point in time or? No, from, from the time that I've been hunting in Ethiopia, there's only been a, a very few amount of tags. I think 22 is the most it's, it's, it's ever been and I can't see it increasing mm -hmm. because there are only a handful of areas where you can hunt the mountain Yala in Ethiopia. Yeah. So yeah, it's one of those species. It's, it's a very sought after prized animal to hunt yeah if you think about hunting africa and the three prized spiral antelope you're looking at the lord derby mm -hmm. island you're looking at bongo and you're looking at the mountain yala all three of those critters require a lot of hard work it's, yeah. it's not an animal that you can just drive around and hunt from the back of a truck you you've got to put in a lot of work to get one in the salt and that's what makes them such prized animals it's a special to hunt. one yeah, yeah. And I mean, anybody that's hunted Africa or looked at it, it seems like all the animals here compared to anywhere else are just so colorful. It's not just their face. It covers all the way through their body. And that, like, seeing the mountain yala in the, in the field this week is the same way. They're just gorgeous when they, when they step out, the yala bulls. Yeah, it's one of the most majestic animals that you could possibly hunt. You know, when you're hunting any of the spiral horn antelope, they're all so cool and unique in their own way. But when you get to... Uh, to Ethiopia, you've got the colobus monkey, mm -hmm. which is so completely different to any other kind of monkey that you find in, in Africa. It's such a cool little critter to see and hunt and just to see how yep. they behave in the trees and bounce around. It's, it's just a cool, cool critter. Then you've got the Menlik's bushbuck, which is a dark-colored bushbuck, small in body size, and uh, they stay in the thickets, as you will experience. Oh, yeah. I mean, we walked and walked and walked mm -hmm. to get you your bushbuck. Uh, speaking of that, while we're on the topic, I mean, that bushbuck that you shot took off like a rocket and you pulled off probably one of the best shots I've seen 
Well, thank in, you for giving in, me a plug on my own podcast. That is nice. <laughs> that is nice. Was, I do have to admit, for anybody listening, it was a good shot. A lot of luck. It a lot was of luck. a very good shot, and I'm here for you, Mark. Yeah. That's what this is all about. <laughs> That's what it's all about. And then, uh, okay, so I'm going to try to pronounce this right. Bohor. Bohor. The Bohor Readback. Bo-hor. B-O-H-O-R. That's correct. Bohor. Bohor yeah, read book, and that was how we completed the the safari earlier today. Was I was able to take that, and that that got all four of the species in this this area of Ethiopia. And Jason explained to me there's um, other parts to hunt in Ethiopia, but they may have a little bit of a civil war going on right now that you may want to just wait that out for a little bit. Yeah, I think for the last two years there's been a bit of a bun fight, uh, especially in the Danakil region of Ethiopia. Um, like I say, I mean, there's been a bit of a war zone for the last two years, mm-hmm. but everything's pretty much quieted and down there. We had a, an exceptional area that we were hunting in the Danakil, and because of the war over there, we just done a game count probably about a month ago and yeah. concluded the game count. And we, we were seeing hundreds of oryx and uh, lesser kudu and all mm-hmm. kinds of critters. So when they did the game count now, I, I, I don't think they saw an oryx. Oh, wow. So that doesn't look very good uh, or very promising, but there was a, a lot of Somerings gazelle and the salt dick-dick and all of those kind of critters was, mm-hmm. were still still running around. But I think after the war, with all of the noise and the shooting and the fighting, and obviously armies have got to eat, yep. they probably hammered a bit of the game, but it will bounce back. Give it two, three years, and it will be back to its former glory for sure. WTA Tags is a full-service licensing program available to today's sportsmen. Bottom line, they help hunters draw the very best limited-entry big-game tags. They offer professional consultation on where to apply and then properly complete and submit your applications to the state. Tags has the easiest, most reliable, and most complete service to assist you in drawing that tag of a lifetime. For a free Tags consultation, Call 1-800-755-8247 or visit them online at WorldwideTrophyAdventures.com slash tags. That's WorldwideTrophyAdventures.com slash tags. From my Upland Slam in 2019 to the South America Waterfall Slam in 2022, anytime I'm headed on a wing shooting adventure, I'm always picking up my Benelli shotgun. If you want to dominate the skies, shoot a Benelli. See their full line of Benelli shotguns online at BenelliUSA.com or drop into a retailer near you. Worldwide Trophy Adventures is your ultimate outdoor connection. Good hunting ground is becoming increasingly difficult to find, and the only way to ensure access to the best areas and operations is to spend a ton of time, effort, and money to research these destinations. Worldwide Trophy Adventures does all of this legwork for you and at no charge. By booking your trip through WTA, you can rest assured that you'll be in a great location with a reputable outfitter that they have certified and endorsed. If you're looking to book that trip of a lifetime, make sure to give the team at WTA a call at 1-800-346-8747 or check out their website at WorldwideTrophyAdventures.com. No matter where I'm hunting in the world, I'm always wearing my Mindel boots. I guess you could say that I sort of live in my Mindel hunting boots. And right now at MindleUSA.com, you can use promo code MPJOURNEY to get a free pair of socks when you order up a pair of boots. Again, that's promo code MPJOURNEY at MindleUSA.com. Now back to the journey within. And that's part of anybody that's listening. Operating in Africa is 
let's just say different than operating in the U.S., Canada, or a lot of the other countries because, well, let's face it, you don't got to worry about civil wars in, in countries like that and just the the transportation of getting to some of the areas that, that you hunt, not just in Ethiopia, but Zambia and so forth, it's, it's just more challenging, I guess you would say. Um, what is something, like, one of the myths that, I mean, you guys have worked the shows and talked to a lot of potential clients over the years, that, that you hear a potential client, one of the myths that they say, I, I don't want to do this because of, I've heard this. Like, when, when you have somebody come up, like, what's one of the big myths that somebody says about hunting in Africa that just isn't true? Well, I would say uh, a lot of people are under the false impression that getting into uh, an African country is very dangerous mm -hmm. and uh, that uh, if you go into one of these very, uh, how can you say, one of these countries like Ethiopia yep. that are way off the grid mm -hmm. or Zambia or Tanzania that you're going to get hijacked or somebody's going to come into your camp and yeah. uh, abduct you. I mean, there's been horror stories of guys that have been in Cameroon and some of those places mm -hmm. where uh, they've been in camp and guerrilla-type terrorist people have come into the camp and held them ransom and, and those kind of stories get out and everybody thinks that now if you go to Africa, you're going to run into some kind of a problem and it's not safe, which couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, something like that happening is one in a million. Yeah. Uh, all the African countries that we hunted are all very safe, very easy to get in and out of. If you are hunting with the, with the right operator that knows what he's doing, mm -hmm. you're not going to have any issues. Yeah, exactly. So it's all who you book through, who you're going with. Uh, if you go with people that know what they're doing, people that are experienced and have been in the industry for a long time, you're not going to have any issues. Exactly, yeah. That's what it all, all boils down to. Do your homework, do your research, find the references, and you will be in for a good time yep and I've, I've been fortunate to hunt africa quite a bit and and continue to hunt different countries um and fortunate to do it and it's something that once you hunt it once you want to go back multiple times and just have different experiences of it's if it's plains games if it's just hunting a different country if it's if it's big or uh, dangerous game hunting um it just kind of gets in your blood and there's something special about africa as, as you guys know about hunting here when what makes the ideal client coming over in your mind? What, well, it, what does that client need to, need to mentally prepare and physically prepare for when they come here? Well, I think the most important thing on any safari is to come and have fun. Mm -hmm. Don't worry about the record book or a tape measure mm -hmm. or anything like that. Come, uh, concentrate on what the professional hunter is telling you. He's going to guide you and make sure that you get the best possible animals that you can possibly get. So if he tells you, listen, that's a good one, let's light him up. It could be the first five minutes of day one. Yep. It's always a good idea to listen to the pH and uh, just take it, take it easy, enjoy the experience. So a question for you. So if I had a pH that say we were land, in the back of a land cruiser mm -hmm. in Botswana and we were cruising by, you know, this is probably I think day three, and we saw a 44-inch buffalo. <laughs> and, and, and if that pH said, no, nah, we should probably be quiet because we're there hunting elephants, what would you do? Well, let me tell you, <laughs> let me, let me tell you a funny story. There was this guy called Mark Peterson, and we did an elephant hunt in Botswana. And I think it was day one or day two of yeah. the safari, and we were driving down the road, and we saw a 44-inch buffalo standing right next to the road. It was a really big buffalo. It was the opening, opening day of hunting season in Botswana. 
hunting had been closed for like 9, 10, 11, 12 years in mm -hmm. Botswana. And we were the first guys in into one of the top areas in Botswana for big elephant bulls. So anyway, we saw this 44-inch buffalo standing right next to the road. Mark looked at me and said, Jason, I think we should shoot that buffalo. And I said, Mark, unfortunately, we cannot shoot that buffalo because there might be your 90-pound elephant 200 meters down the road. Mm -hmm. And we shoot this buffalo and our elephant is gone. I can clearly remember Mark crying. A little bit of tears. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> as we pulled away and left this 44-inch buffalo standing next to the side of the road. It was a very traumatic experience for Mark. <laughs> <laughs> One I'm still trying to get over. <laughs> exactly. Sometimes I cry myself to sleep when I think about that story. But I think it was like day, day 12, we finally got Mark's uh, elephant on the ground. And uh, he didn't let a day go by without reminding me about that 44-inch bull that we passed up. And I still won't. And even now, I mean, <laughs> we're in Ethiopia. I don't know how many years have gone past since that traumatic incident. And Mark is still telling me about his 44-inch buffalo. <laughs> so uh, before, we, before we move on, just we got lots of stories here. Before, before we move on and talk about the other countries you guys outfit in, what – the number one thing, if I'm being in the, if I'm being honest, in the states, and in, in for the 10, 10 to 12, well, there's nine to twelve million hunters in the U.S. There's no real accurate number, but somewhere between nine and twelve million hunters. And the common thing I hear about Africa from hunters and non is the, is questions on the conservation model. So the, and I want to hear it from you guys, the conservation model in the U.S., and then I'll kind of chime in on how it differs from the U.S. My basic take in on how I best explain the conservation model. If the animal doesn't have value here, there is no animal. 100% for sure. And the way that I explain it to most people is if you look at Kenya, they stopped hunting in Kenya, I think, in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. uh, 1975 or 1976, they stopped hunting in Kenya. And when they stopped hunting there, they had a, a, a white rhino population of 21,000 rhino. Mm -hmm. They had a massive elephant population. They had a massive lion population. And when they closed down the, the, the safari hunting industry, uh, from, from 1975 to where we are now, they have got 700 rhinos left in Kenya, plus wow. minus, from 21,000 right down to 700. Mm -hmm. Now, if you take South Africa, for example, in the 1950s, we had less than 100 rhino in South Africa. There was a guy by the name of Dr. Ian Player. So what he decided to do was take some rhinos out of the national parks and give them to private landowners for the first time. Yep. And uh, what they did is they gave these rhinos to some of the private landowners. And what they did is they started hunting some of the old bulls and the old cows that were no longer breeding. And in that same period of time, from 1950 to where we are today, we're sitting with a, a, a white rhino population of probably 20,000 at the moment. So you basically flipped. We basically multiplied the number exorbit yeah. exorbitantly. Mm -hmm. Yes, very much so. So there's a classic example of how uh, hunting has benefited the, 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 basically the white rhino population. Yeah. They gave that white rhino massive uh, value. Mm -hmm. And because of that, other landowners started buying land and they started buying uh, rhinos and mm -hmm. they started breeding the rhinos because they could see back in the day, I mean, 25, 30 years ago, they were getting $30,000 for a rhino. Yep. 
which was a huge amount of money. So everybody jumped onto the bandwagon and they started buying land, uh, habitat for the rhino, mm -hmm. and uh, buying rhinos and breeding them and getting the numbers up to where they are today. Whereas in Kenya, the rhino population went from 21,000 to 700 today. Uh, and not only the, the, the rhino, but if you look at their wildlife across the board, mm -hmm. the elephants, the lions, the leopards, they've lost 80% Wow. of their wildlife population from the mid-70s to where we are now because there's no private landowners that will look after mm -hmm. wildlife. It was all poached out. And the only place that you will find wildlife is in one of the national parks. Outside of the national park, there is absolutely cool. nothing. In just the different areas uh, that I've been fortunate enough to hunt in Zambia and Zim and so forth, it's the same thing in the, the hunting blocks because those animals have value, they're, I mean, they're going to be protected, right? From 100% for sure. Just because they're protected. And then areas that don't have hunting blocks, to me, I mean, it, you can't find a living thing in there. It's kind of sad when you drive past areas like that, but the trees are almost all gone. The animals are, are obviously all gone. Um, and it's the whole, the whole concept is very tough for people in the U.S., Canada, and Mexico, if they haven't seen it, to believe it just because of, what we live with in the u.s right there i mean there's so much land there and there's not as many people as there are in africa so there's there's not the demand on the wildlife like it like it once was but it's a it's a real thing like the animals in africa the only way that that they can survive is they have to have value um and as places stop hunting or, or reduce tags down that that value just goes away um we put some we put some miles on here in Ethiopia the last the last few days here. We're measuring the days in miles, not not anything else, just how many miles we walk. So we a lot of, obviously a lot of time to think during that. But like almost the same thing is semi happening in the US with animals in value. Now obviously not white tails or turkeys and so forth, but just the way that the human population is expanding in the US in more housing, hospitals, restaurants, like it's all taking away from habitat, right? I'm a big bird hunter, so the rough grouse is kind of the same thing just because the value wasn't there to protect the habitat. Now all of a sudden, corn fields are pushed out and they lost their habitat. It's a different type of pressure than what's in Africa, but it's sort of, it's sort of the same thing. Like money is going to save certain species because they're, they're worth that value in, in habitat in the U.S. versus in, in Africa where they would get poached out, but it's the same type of concept that, that's coming. Yeah, you see, the thing in Africa is uh, if it pays, it stays. Mm -hmm. So the moment an animal has value, somebody's going to look after it. You, yep. The moment you take that value away, that animal is going to be poached into extinction. If you look at the local communities in Africa, they view wildlife as a pest. Mm -hmm. They see uh, elephants, they see hippos, they see lions. Uh, hippos, elephants, lions, they all kill people. Yep. Hippos, elephants... They all caused uh, massive destruction to people's crops. I mm -hmm. mean, a group of elephants get into somebody's cornfield in one night, it will destroy that it's whole gone. person's livelihood. So th they view that animal as a pest. Mm -hmm. And let me tell you, the moment you've taken the value away and there's nobody looking after or protecting an area, the locals will go in and kill absolutely everything. I'll give you an example. In Zambia, I think it was... Uh, from 2015 to 2017, or whichever year it was, uh, Zambia was closed to hunting. Mm -hmm. And just in one of the areas that we hunt in, they poached over 100 elephants in, in that two-year period. Wow. When we started hunting in Zambia again, 
from 2017 to 2023, I think we lost five or six elephants in that same period of time. And that's because there was a presence in yeah. the hunting area. The operator that's hunting in the area spends thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars in anti-poaching, mm -hmm. protecting and look, looking after the area. You know, you hunt a leopard, you hunt a buffalo, you hunt uh, an elephant. A lot of that percentage of the, the money that comes in goes back into the area to protect yeah. and conserve the habitat for those animals. Mm -hmm. So you will always find in a, in a hunting area that's managed correctly, you will have thriving wildlife populations, and that's purely because of the hunter's dollar. If there is no hunter's dollars, there is no money for anti-poaching, mm -hmm. there's no money for community projects, you can kiss that wildlife goodbye. Yeah. The moment you close down hunting in Africa, I guarantee you the same thing will happen like it happened in Kenya you will lose 80%, 90% of your wildlife across the board. Mm -hmm. So people that want to stop hunting, it's an emotional-based yep. thing. It's not scientifically based, and they're not thinking with their brains. They're mm -hmm. thinking with their hearts. They would rather have you not hunt two or three old leopards. They would rather see all of them die out from starvation or being poached out because there's nobody there to protect it. They just do not understand what's happening in Africa today. Yeah. Everybody in Europe is some kind of an expert and they've never been to yeah, Africa been before. And they want to tell us and dictate to us how we should manage our wildlife. It's just, it's crazy. So here's another question that'll probably get you even worked up. What's the what's the which I like it. So here, yeah, I get really annoyed. So so yeah. I hear the same. This is one of the arguments that I hear, right? And then I do my best to try to go against it. But again, I don't live in Africa. I've just been fortunate enough to visit here and and experience the hunting. Well, they're photo safaris, so the photo safari places will take care of will take care of that. Yeah, there's no way that your photographic safari company is going to take care of that. If you look at the average photographic safari company, the average bed night is probably $350 a night mm -hmm. that a, a photographic guy is going to pay for the privilege to come in. Their carbon footprint, you've got hundreds and hundreds of vehicles driving around in your national parks. Yep. If there's a line that's trying to mate or there's a line that's made a kill, you've got 300 vehicles that approach that animal and disrupted they yeah. drive over the tortoises they drive over the grass they drive over the trees to yeah. get to get to have a look and see and how much money do they put back into conservation uh, if you look at one elephant hunter one elephant hunter for example in zambia is paying fifty thousand dollars just in daily rates and a trophy mm -hmm. fee for the elephant then he's coming he's flying with an airplane he's mm -hmm. uh, paying the charter company to fly and he's staying in hotels yep um, he's eating how, meals on the way he's in, the way meals. out. Yep. How many bed nights do you have to sell in a photographic safari camp to make up $50,000 for one elephant hunt? A lot. It's, it's a lot of bed nights that you have to sell to make that kind of money. And just being being fortunate and been on elephant hunts before, when you're on an elephant hunt, it's the photo safari is right there, right? It's the lodge, the driver, the people that work right there. It's a stationary. But when you're on an elephant hunt, I mean, it's the whole concession. I mean, miles and miles, 60 to 70 miles one way. And you're involving the, the communities in, in the hunt and so forth, especially with the meat distribution, but even the, the dollars that each one gets when it's distributed out. So I was blown away in Botswana. Of we had When, when we dropped the meat off, we had the two local government guys come in and, and ask me the question, why do Americans not want to hunt elephants? We need 
hunters here to control the population to to do all that and i was i was like man i was blown away right luckily we had a camera rolling when he was when he was going on his little tangent of what what the american public sees and what reality is there well if you ask the average local person that's living in a community where there's a lot of wildlife they want to see hunting Mm -hmm. the reason they want to see hunting is because they view it wildlife as a pest Mm -hmm. and when they can see that there's a value in their wildlife that's living on their doorstep. When an elephant gets shot, the meat gets given to the community. Mm-hmm. It feeds hundreds and hundreds of people. They see that there's a benefit from that wildlife. So instead of killing it, they protect it. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of the villages where we operate and hunt, we have informants in the villages. So when something gets poached, uh, they see that as a big problem for their livelihood. So they will mm-hmm. actually go and report that person to the authorities and we keep a big handle on the poaching just from that way from people seeing that there's a benefit in 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 the hunters coming to hunt Mm -hmm. i mean we feed thousands and thousands of hungry people every year with the with the animals that we hunt if we shoot a a buffalo if we shoot a hippo if it's a kudu a puku whatever it is it will be distributed amongst the communities in the area that we're operating in Um, Mm -hmm. we think uh Balls, uh, we, we, we build clinics, we build schools with monies generated yep. from hunting. So we improve the, the quality of life for, yep. the, for the local people in the areas. So they want us in the areas. They want to see hunting. They want mm-hmm. to see hunting thriving. And yeah, like I said, I mean, you can ask anybody in, in any of the communities. If you speak to the average Joe on the street, they will tell you we want the hunters yep. because it's improving our, lively, our livelihoods and our quality of life. And that's the that's the story that I try to tell every time I come over, and and I hope everybody that has a TV show or that comes over here that has an influence on on not just the hunting the hunting public but um, just the mainstream public is that it's wanted over here. It's the way that it's success for for the communities and the wildlife is the model that's that's set up, and it's one of those sad things that people that have never been here or been here once on a photo safari and lived in a uh, fantasy three or five day trip here want to make decisions on how you guys operate yeah it's crazy it's like yeah. uh, having one of the villages sit down and have a big meeting and have all the headmen for Erie and Zambia and let them tell U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services how they must manage their deer population mm-hmm. in America they've got absolutely no idea what's going on in America with the deer or nothing so yeah. why would somebody that's got no experience whatsoever with uh, wildlife management in Africa, why would they tell us how to manage our wildlife? Yep. Yep. It just it makes zero sense to me whatsoever. Um, how are, not so much South, South Africa, but like in Zambia, Zim, even Ethiopia where we're at now, how are the quotas set? in the hunting areas like how does that get determined and you mentioned game counts and like how does it all go into saying okay for the next year the next two years this is what how many buffalo how many elephants and so forth so a lot of times what will happen is the government will actually set the quota mm-hmm. and they will work hand in hand with the with the outfitters so for example if there's a game scout in zambia and you're driving around he'll do a daily game count every single day so okay. he's not just there looking good Every time you'll see 20 elephants or 50 buffalo or 100 buffalo, he'll take out his little notebook and he'll write down exactly what they've seen every single day. And we actually have a register where they will fill in the numbers of animals that you've seen. Now, say, for example, you've got a quota of 25 buffalo. Uh And uh, for five years, you 
hunting and you only shoot 10 buffalo every single year. Mm-hmm. The government will see now, why are these guys not shooting 25 buffalo every single season? They're only shooting 10. Yep. So automatically, they will reduce the number of buffalo that they put on quota. Gotcha. They will also work on the, the game count from the scouts and all of the rest. Uh, every now and then, they'll do an aerial survey where mm-hmm. they'll count the game from the sky. And they'll have a pretty good number, uh, a pretty good idea of the numbers in the area, and from there they'll deduce uh, what what your quota should be. And a good responsible outfitter will also not take off yeah. animals that not, where it's not going to be sustainable. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, you want to be sustainable. You want to be able to make your uh, your animal n- numbers increase. You don't mm-hmm. want them to decrease at all, and you want to be able to hunt the old animals. Yep, so exactly. if you're shooting old animals on a regular basis you know that your management plan is 100% correct because mm-hmm. what you want to do is you want to make sure that the people in the areas are benefiting, the wildlife numbers are increasing, and that it's a win-win for everybody. And you brought up something something there, kind of spin on topics. A hunting party in Africa. You mentioned the, the, the game scouts and everything. What's a traditional, like here in Ethiopia, what's a traditional hunting party? So it's obviously PH, hunter, who else is there? So normally in Ethiopia, what you'll do is you'll have two game scouts. You'll mm-hmm. have a regional game scout, and then you'll have a government game scout that will accompany uh, the, the hunt. And their job will be to make sure that you follow all of the rules and regulations and make sure that everything goes uh, according to plan. And in Ethiopia, we have a big hunting party because you can't really drive mm-hmm. around in the mountains. Everywhere you go, you've got to go on horseback, mm-hmm. and you've got to go either by horse or walking. And uh, you've got a lot of gear that you need yeah. to take with you when you're hunting in the mountains. So on an average safari that we do in Ethiopia, we'll have 25 to 30 people mm-hmm. just in the hunting group. That's not the people in the camp and the skinners and the cooks and the chefs and the waiters and yep. the people that do the, the laundry and all the rest of it. So you're employing a lot of people just on, on, on one safari. Yeah. And uh, obviously you guys leave really good tips at the end of the uh, safari. So basically what we want to do is we want to benefit the people in the mm-hmm. area. It's not about taking, it's about maintaining, being sustainable, and giving back. And yep. a lot of people don't see that. They, f- they think hunters are evil, they're barbaric. All they want to do is kill and, mm-hmm. and destroy, which is not the case. We are making sure that it's sustainable. And in most areas where we're hunting, wildlife populations are increasing. Yep. And when I say they're increasing, they're increasing dramatically. Uh, we, we're not hurting populations at all. Yeah. One, one thing just to point out when, when Jason mentioned uh, Game Scouts Regional and so forth, like if, if you think about in the U.S., there would be a, a game warden, a DNR officer and so forth that's, that's there, basically somebody that's monitoring the hunting that's going on. Um, from the government, which is a good, I mean, it's a good thing, right? Like, very much so. Yeah. So they're very, doing very the, I didn't know about the game counts, though, even though I've been here so many times. I, I guess I didn't realize that was part of what they did as, as well. That's, that's pretty cool. Um, okay, so now what other areas? We, we covered Ethiopia, obviously. Um, I know you guys do, do some stuff, obviously, in, in South Africa. What other countries do you guys operate in? So we mainly, we mainly hunt in South Africa. We do quite a bit in Botswana with the elephants. That's mm-hmm. the main thing that we hunt in Botswana. It's probably the, the best country to hunt big elephant bulls. So mm-hmm. that's what we focus on in Botswana. They've also got very big leopards, which is, which is nice to hunt. Then we do a lot of hunting in Zambia. I think uh, at the moment, Zambia is probably the country where we, where we hunt the most. Uh, we probably average 20 leopards in a season in Zambia. 
we do a lot of buffalo and all, all that kind of thing. Our, our main main hunting focus is, is dangerous game. Mm-hmm. And then obviously we do quite a bit in Tanzania. We hunt in Maasai land where you've got all the cool, funky Maasai species, which mm-hmm. you can't find anywhere else in Africa. You've got the lesser kudu, Grant's gazelle, Thompson's gazelle, striped hyena, all kinds of cool critters, like I say, that you, you, you can only hunt them in, in Tanzania. Then we do a lot in Ethiopia. Obviously, all of the animals that we hunt in Ethiopia mm-hmm. are all very unique to Ethiopia. So we, we pretty much hunt all over Africa. That's what it sounds like. How many days are you guys in the field a year? Yeah, last year, I think I was gone 270 days, and I think Clint was wow. 260 days away from home. A whole bunch of time, yeah. Wow. <laughs> 270 and 260. And your wife still remembers you when you come home occasionally? Yeah, she actually encourages me to go hunting. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, only 270, huh? You couldn't go anymore. Exactly. <laughs> You know, when you've been home for a week and your your bags are packed and they're at the front door, you know your wife wants you to go back it's to the field. Time, time, time to, to go. go. So, and how and you guys do do um, shows in the U.S. too. You do SCI in Dallas. Yeah, we yeah. do SCI and, and then Dallas Safari Club. We've been doing it for twenty four, twenty five years now. Okay. So uh, we've been doing that that a lot. Uh, yeah. We always enjoy going to the shows. Uh, so it's always a good thing you get to see. All of your friends mm-hmm. from around the world. Sometimes you're hunting in the same country as some of your fellow professional hunters, and you only see them at at the, at the show in well, the US. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's always a good time. Um, so to end to end this, um, I got a got a question that I ask um, a lot of a lot of guests that I have on um, over the years because you you guys have been doing this so long. Do you look at social media as being good for hunting or bad for hunting? I'm a big social media guy. I think it's it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people can see what's going on in Africa and responsible hunters and outfitters, they'll spread the word and show what they're doing and how they're benefiting uh, conservation as a whole through hunting mm-hmm. by being sustainable custodians of our wildlife heritage. Um, uh, I think it's a great platform for spreading the word. And like I said, I'm a, I'm a big uh, social media guy. Yeah, I do know you like the social media. You you uh, have a tendency of attracting a few weirdos along the way too. I like to just follow your social media just to see what who's uh, harassing you on any given day. Yeah, we have a lot of these. Uh, <laughs> we have a lot of these people. I like to call them the leaf lickers. Uh, these are these uh, absolute they lunatics. Yeah, it doesn't matter what kind of facts or figures that you give these people, they just will not understand it. Um, I've had people threaten us and. There was even one guy that said he would pay $100,000 for the first person that sent him a picture of me being deceased. So, I mean, what kind of nutcase is that? Yeah. Uh, there's so many of these sick people in the world. So, sometimes if I've got nothing to do with myself, I'll bait them up a little bit and get, get <laughs> stuck get into them, them just, just for my own personal amusement. That yeah. week that you're at home just to give me get something to do on the couch besides it, watching Yellowstone. It, speaking, speaking of this, exactly. so Jason this week, he, he says he's watched Yellowstone, but he's done it completely different because what season did you watch first, Jason? Well, I was at home and my wife was watching season five and it was like episode seven or eight. Uh-huh. And I sat down to have a cup of coffee, and I, I watched half of the first episode. And then the next day, she was watching another season of, or another episode of Yellowstone, and I sat down, and that's how I got into it. So I watched season five, mm-hmm. 
we went back to season four and I watched season four, <laughs> season three, and then I went to season one and finished off with season two. And it's absolutely <laughs> amazing how all of those pieces fitted together after watching <laughs> all of these After seasons. watching season two, Jason put it all together. It was incredible. Oh, that's awesome. Well, thanks, guys. So anybody that's listening, we obviously recorded this in Ethiopia. We've got nothing to do this afternoon besides sit around here, pack our stuff up, and hopefully catch a charter flight tomorrow and the red-eye home for me. But thanks for joining, guys. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Thank See, you, Mark. So Clinton, was it, was it bad? Clinton's been sleeping for the last half <laughs> Well, <now. laughs> once, once you, I think when we get started with Jason, what was it that got you all worked up? Well, the conservation <laughs> model, and then 20 yeah, minutes that. later. <laughs> I think that took red. up the whole hour. Yeah, his <laughs> face is red, and then... <laughs> Perfect. Thanks, guys. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Thanks for all your support and downloads. If you like this episode, please go and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, as that always helps. Do you want to book that hunt of a lifetime? Then give the team at Worldwide Trophy Adventures a call at 1-800-346-8747. Or if you want to start a tags portfolio for those limited entry tags, give the team a call at 1-800-775-775. 8247. Enjoy your journey.